Thank you, John, for that powerful testimony. You know, adoption is such a remarkable picture of the gospel. And um, if I could just selfishly ask you to pray for at least three families right now that I know of in our church who are in the adoption process, um, myself included. That's news to most of you. Um, we've just started here recently, Rachel and I, and we've already been matched with a child. It's a lot of crazy circumstances, but if you could pray for us, and also the Johnstones and the Easterwoods are in the adoption process. Hope you're okay with me telling that. <laughs> I know it's been on Facebook. Look, you put something on Facebook, it ain't private no more, so don't, don't come talk to me about not letting it out. So, but adoption is a powerful picture of what the Father has done for us through Christ. In light of that, I want to share another testimony with you as we start this morning. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to be resuming in Matthew today and um, get to that in just a second. But part of the passage this morning talks about the strength and endurance of the church of God, of the church that Christ established and is still building. And so some of you know, a few weeks ago, we took a team to East Asia to support uh, the work of the IMB and to support uh, missionaries on the field there by taking care of their children while husbands and wives trained together to be more effective in taking the gospel to the unreached. And I emailed some of those folks uh, in preparation for this message and asked them for a testimony of how they have seen the church endure. And so what I'd like to do is read to you a part of this brother's testimony. And then as we close today, I want to read you the conclusion. So he says this, I was reminded this past month of this passage in one of my dealings with some Meow believers. Previously, I had not known of really any believers among my people group. But this past month, I met a family that are believers. In 1997, the gospel was taken to their little village and many people believed. Their church, that there was a church started and the gospel was spreading. So stay tuned for the conclusion of that testimony. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and stand with me, please. You're in Matthew chapter 16. We're going to begin in verse 13 and go through verse 20. Matthew writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in such a way that we can know that everything we see here is true. He says this, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we ask this morning that you help us to understand who Christ really is, 
that you help us cut through the confusion and the chaos and all of the competing ideas of who Jesus is and help us to see clearly what the scriptures say about the person of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. I pray also that you would see how you have worked miraculously over the ages to build your church. Father, may we be found faithful to continue partnering with you in building your kingdom. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So this morning, I just have two questions for us to, to answer, to identify. So if you're a note taker, two main points this morning. One, Jesus is the Messiah. Pretty straightforward. Jesus is the Messiah. Number two, Jesus will build his church. Jesus is the Messiah and Jesus will build his church. Pretty straightforward right here from the text. There's a lot going on here that we need to look at. There's a lot going on here that we need to unpack. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about where Jesus is and why he is here. And so in Matthew chapter 16, we see kind of a, a bit of a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. And you're going to see a key to that at the end of today's passage when he tells the disciples not to tell anyone who he is. It's kind of a curious thing, especially in light of Matthew chapter 28, when he says, go out into all the world and tell people who I am. But it's not time yet. It's not time yet. And so Jesus has gone up to the region of Caesarea Philippi. Um, a few years ago, I had the absolute privilege to go on a study trip with my seminary to Israel and Jordan. And it was a remarkable time. And if anybody who's ever been there, you know that going once is not enough. <laughs> you're overwhelmed. You're learning so much. And so I look forward to the day that I might be able to return. But we actually went to this spot in Caesarea Philippi where Jesus would have been teaching his disciples. And right there, there is a temple to the god Pan uh, who looks like a goat. Uh, these people, these pagans, they have interesting ways of making their gods look like things. He looks like a goat. And uh, he's kind of a, a, an agricultural deity of the time. And there was a temple there that, he, um, that, they, that the people had erected and had set up to go and worship him, make sacrifices to him. And, and it was a dark place. It represented uh, death. It represented demonic activity. So that's in the backdrop of where, what Jesus is teaching here. He's literally saying, hey, guys, all this pagan nonsense, all, all these fake gods, all, these, all this threat of death, you don't have to worry about it. It's not going to overcome my church. It, it can't come against you. And of course, he's going to prove that in the resurrection. But we're not quite there yet. And so Jesus has gone as far north as he intends to go in his ministry. And as soon as he is done in Caesarea Philippi, he's going to turn around and work his way south and head towards Jerusalem. And if you're a student of the Bible... Even if you're just a cultural Christian, you know what happened in Jerusalem the last week of Jesus' life. It didn't end well for him. It began with what we call a triumphal entry, which we will celebrate next week. And it ended with him on a cross dying for us. And so Jesus now is, is turning geographically and even thematically to head towards Jerusalem, to pursue God's plan for his life, to be obedient to the plan of the Father, because to go to Jerusalem is to go to his death. And so we've reached a, we've reached a turning point 
in the narrative, in Matthew's narrative. And there's a lot of remarkable things going on here. Notice here, he poses a question to the disciples in verse 13. He says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Now, you might recall a few months ago, it seems like it's taken us a decade to get through Matthew, but we're, we're just going to keep on going. We're going to get through it. So a few months ago, we talked about the interaction between Herod and John the Baptist. And we learned that Herod was afraid of Jesus because he supposed that maybe Jesus was like the reincarnation, in a sense, of John the Baptist. That, that Jesus had come back. You remember Herod had cut John the Baptist's head off. And he was scared to death. Herod was a paranoid, strange man. But he was scared to death that John the Baptist had somehow returned from the dead in the person of Jesus. And so Herod was really confused about the identity of Jesus. So this is not the first time that this question has to be addressed. Jesus knew that many people were confused about who he was. So he just says, guys, what have you been hearing on the streets? What's the gossip? What is this group saying? What is that group saying? And they say, they say to him, they say, well, if you look in verse 14, some say John the Baptist, some being Herod and his followers. Others say that you're Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, are one of the prophets. And so what I want to do there for just a second is, is unpack a little bit of what it would look like in Jesus' day. But even more importantly, I want to ask a couple of questions about what it looks like in our day. So there were well-intentioned people, probably not all who were paranoid and freaked out and weird like Herod, but just normal, well-intentioned people who thought, you know, this is another prophet in the line of prophets that God has sent us. It had been about 400 years since Israel had heard from a prophet of God, from a messenger of God. There was, a lot of, there was silence from God for a long period of time. And so maybe they thought, finally, God's got back on the program and he sent us a new prophet. That's not entirely unrealistic or unreasonable to assume that. So they, they say, well, some people say that you're John the Baptist, come back. Some people say that you're Elijah, a very powerful man of God in the Old Testament. Some people say you're Jeremiah. Because Jeremiah preached a hard message, didn't he? Jeremiah preached a message of judgment. Jeremiah preached uh, a message saying, listen, God's kingdom is coming near and you're being disobedient and you're going to pay for it. That's the whole book of Jeremiah summarized, maybe not as well as it should be. But essentially, Jeremiah preached difficult things. Well, Jesus had been preaching difficult things too. It wasn't all just healings. It wasn't all just miraculous feedings. It was talking about the judgment coming on the nation of Israel. It was talking about the Pharisees and the judgment that was coming upon them. So maybe Jesus is just a prophet. Maybe, maybe he's not Jeremiah. Maybe, maybe he's coming in the spirit of another one of the prophets. Maybe he's like Isaiah or Micah or Hosea or one of these guys. So I want to ask the question just like Jesus does in verse 15. He, he says to them, he, he, he doesn't dispute that. He doesn't say, come on guys, Go, stop right now, let's stop our meeting, let's stop our discipleship training. Go back into the cities, and I need you to correct all of these false reports. I need you to find the people who think I'm John the Baptist, clear that up. I need you to find the people who think I'm an Old Testament prophet, clear that up. I need you to find the people who think I'm Elijah, clear that up. He doesn't say that, he just says, okay, who do you say that I am? Before we look at Simon Peter's response, I want to ask a question about what kind of answers people in our day are giving to the person of Jesus. 
And so in a few minutes, when we get to the issue of, of how the church started, I want to read to you a quote from a man named Bart Ehrman. Now, None of you maybe have ever heard of Bart Ehrman, but I assure you that if you have children who are heading off to college soon, they will hear of him or they will hear the arguments that he makes. He is a New Testament scholar in North Carolina, brilliant man, but he does not believe in Jesus. He does not trust the Bible as authoritative. And he writes a lot about that. And he influences a lot of secular professors in intro to religion classes at any given university that your children might go to. And so that's why graduates, every year they get this little book that helps to kind of give um, solid and coherent answers to the charges that Bart Ehrman makes. But listen carefully to what Bart Ehrman is saying, a modern-day scholar, and yeah, we'll give him his credit, he is a good scholar, he just happens to not believe in the person of Jesus Christ. So listen to what he says, and I want to ask some questions about it. He says, there were lots of early Christian groups. They all claimed to be right. They all had books to back up their claims, books allegedly written by the apostles and therefore representing the views of Jesus and his first disciples. The group that won out did not represent the teachings of Jesus or his apostles. The victorious group called itself orthodox. But it was not the original form of Christianity. And it won its victory only after many hard-fought battles. Now, if you're generally uninformed and you're generally not familiar with what the Bible says, you hear something like that, you're a young person, you're impressionable, you're wavering in your faith, and you're going to think, sounds reasonable to me. I mean, you know, we hear about, if you, you, those of you who are in the Wednesday night classes learning about how the Old Testament came together and the New Testament came together, you know quite well that there is sound scholarly evidence outside of the Bible, but obviously in the Bible itself, the claims that it makes about itself, to tell us that the scriptures are true and to validate the claims that Christ made about himself. But that doesn't stop men like Bart Ehrman. That doesn't stop people even in our day saying, no, 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 no. You think that you know who Jesus is. You think that you know what Christianity is about. You think that you can trust the Bible. Let me tell you why you can't. In the next couple of weeks, because it's Easter, turn on any cable news network, I don't care which one it is, and you will see a TV special about the real Jesus. You might have already seen these advertisements. You will see secrets unlocked about who Jesus was. We've had it wrong for 2,000 years. Or you will see the History Channel do something similar. Or you will see Newsweek or Time Magazine. You will see the cover say, who is Jesus? This is perennial money-making for these people. To not believe in Jesus, they sure do like to make money off of him every single year at Easter. You've seen these specials. You've, you've heard the arguments. But what I want to do is cut through all that because, honestly, I just want to give most of you the benefit of the doubt. I don't think that most of you in this room buy into all that nonsense. I don't think that most of us in this room buy into the nonsense that Christianity took 500 years to be formed and that the Bible's not trustworthy and that Jesus really wasn't who he said he was. I'm going to assume that most people in this room believe the claims that Jesus made about himself. And so how is it that we can sometimes answer the question wrongly, who is Jesus? Well, if we're honest, sometimes we answer it that he's a cosmic genie. Sometimes we think, well... I really don't like this idea of hell, so I'm going to stay away from that. Thanks, Jesus. Um, I really would like a good job, so if you could get to work on that. I would really like a little bit of extra money in my bank account, even though maybe I don't spend my money as wise as I should, but don't, just don't worry about that. Um, 
I really want my kids to behave better, so if you could, if you could kind of make that happen. Oh, and by the way, change my wife. She's really getting on my nerves. Um, or husband, whichever, fill in the blank. You understand? All of us, don't we? If we're honest in our weaker moments, we know who Jesus is. We trust the Bible. We say, yeah, but I just, I just kind of wish he would do more things for me. I just kind of wish I could rub that little lamp like in the movie Aladdin and this Robin Williams voiced character, Genie, would pop out and say, what do you want? What do you need? And then when we don't need him anymore, we just kind of go back to our lives. We kind of just go back to our doing things in our own strength. And we just kind of go back and say, well, thanks for taking care of that. My, my kids were well, more well behaved this week. Appreciate it. Good job, Jesus. I'll talk to you later. Or sometimes, if we're honest, Jesus becomes somebody who validates the things that we think rather than challenges the things that we think. Right? This can happen on both sides of the political spectrum, whether you consider yourself a liberal or conservative. We sometimes say, oh, see, see, Jesus said right here, this proves what I think. Another person come over here and say, no, 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 he said this over here, it proves what I think. Or sometimes we just think, you know what, Jesus is just a guy who's just there waiting for, for when I'm ready to talk to him, for when I'm ready to submit my life to him. And I would just gently challenge all of us to think about the story of a man like the rich young ruler. He came to Jesus and he said, Jesus, I believe that you're a teacher. I believe that you've come from God. What can I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, well, keep the commandments. He says, man, I got that. I've done it. I've been a good boy. Jesus says, okay, you lack one thing. Sell all you have and give it to the poor and then come follow me. And we know what happens to the man. The Bible says that he walks away sad. And Jesus doesn't chase him. Jesus doesn't chase him. I had a pastor one time say that, you know, the invitation is open, but it may not always be open. The Bible says that the Spirit of God will not always contend with men. So none of us should presume that if we're putting off a recognition of Jesus as Messiah, as we're going to explore in just a moment, that when we're ready, he will be ready for us. That is a dangerous presumption. It's a dangerous presumption. And so, Jesus is your genie, rethink it. If Jesus is the source of building you up in whatever kind of ideology you think rather than letting him challenge what you think, got to deal with that. If you've not yet yielded your life to Jesus, if you've said, I mean, he makes some good points and next year I'll think more about it. You're not guaranteed next year. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. And so as we think about those of us who are Christians allowing the true identity of Jesus to challenge us and to shape us and to make us uncomfortable and to, to mold us more into his image rather than vice versa, or for those of us who might be skeptics, who might be saying, yeah, that's good for Christian people, but I, you know, my life's getting along just fine. Just remember that the truth of a thing does not depend on whether or not you and I believe it. A thing is true independent of who does or does not believe it. And it is true that Jesus is the Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
And so we see here that it's not just in Jesus' day there was confusion, but it's in our day that there is confusion over who Jesus is. And I expose you to this kind of academic argument because it's out there and it's coming after our children. But even if that doesn't bother you, think again about the ways that we tend to fashion Jesus in our image rather than being conformed into his. And so the question is a perennial question. It's a relevant question for the disciples And it's a relevant question for us as modern-day disciples. Who do we say that Jesus is? Well, the answer comes in verse 16. Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, some of your Bibles may say you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. The word Christ there just means God's anointed one. It means Messiah. It means Savior of the world. And so... Let's unpack that for just a bit. <coughs> Excuse me. So in Jesus' day, um, the first century Jews were ready and waiting for a Messiah. They were ready and waiting. They were not, in a sense, caught off guard when Jesus showed up and said, I am the Messiah. Now, the Pharisees, they weren't caught off guard, but they were deeply offended. Why? Because Jesus made claims of equality with God. Jesus said, I'm not just a messenger. I am God. I am one with God. I have come from God. I do the will of God. I have the authority of God. I have the power of God. And that, of course, is the thing that got him crucified. But first century Jews were ready for a Messiah. But even those faithful Jews misunderstood a bit about what the Messiah would do. And so next week, I don't want to jump ahead, but next week, we're going to look at a very stunning counter to this story. It's stunning. When Peter has to be rebuked and called Satan by Jesus himself. And so while this confession of Peter is powerful and it's true, it was not complete in the mind of Peter or the disciples. And so he says here, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And so that word Messiah really involved a lot of things for the Jews. It involved restoration of God's earthly kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, the kingdom of David. It involved a political element of overthrowing the oppressors. In fact, we even see in Acts chapter 1, the apostles, the original disciples, they said, Jesus Now that you've been crucified and resurrected from the dead, you've hung out for us for about 40 days, and that's been great. Are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus just, I don't think Jesus was a sarcastic person, but, you know, he might have done the face palm thing. I'm not sure. But he just said to them, guys, that's not the point. That's not the point. You just chill out here in Jerusalem, wait, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and then you'll be able to do the work that I've called you to do. And so in Jesus' day, it wasn't just the critics, it wasn't just the outsiders, it was the insiders who were a little bit confused about who Jesus was and what he came to do. And so Peter, when when he confesses this, it's a loaded term. We have to be careful not to read back into it what the rest of the New Testament says. We We have to take the author, Matthew, at face value. And we have to understand how the original hearers and the original readers of this gospel would have understood this. And they would have seen, especially in light of what comes next week and what we're going to look at next week, they would have seen, they wouldn't have had to wait a whole week. They would have just read it in succession. They would have seen, oh man, Peter clearly does not fully understand what the Messiah has come to do. Because the Jews were not ready for a Messiah who would suffer. 
They were not ready, they did not want, they did not like the idea that God's anointed one would come here and suffer. And if we're honest, none of us like the idea that as we follow him, we're going to suffer. None of us like the prospect of being made fun of at school, of being ridiculed for our views on marriage or whatever the cultural issue is of the day. None of us like the prospect that God may call us from our comfortable life and send us to the ends of the earth and it might cost us our life. None of us like that, myself included. We are very much like the original disciples. Again, we have these expectations of Jesus. We have these desires of Jesus. We have this idea that he's going to do something amazing in our lives and give us the best marriages and the best kids and the best houses and the best churches. And honestly, sometimes that is not his plan for our life. Because the Bible says that if we seek to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, we will suffer. And if the one we follow suffered... It naturally follows that we will suffer. But Peter wasn't ready for this. He becomes ready. He becomes ready. You see, in the New Testament, in the book of Acts, Peter is ready to suffer. And church history, church tradition tells us that he was crucified because of the name of Jesus. So Peter got there. So there's hope for you and there's hope for me that we'll get there too. But right now, he's still a little bit confused. But notice what he says here. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is not accidental. Remember where they are geographically. They are in the midst of a pagan temple. They are in the midst of pagan idol worship of dead gods, non-existent gods. And Peter says, but that is not you. Peter says the God we serve is living and active in our lives. He's not distant. He's not distracted. He's not far off. He is alive. And Jesus, you are his son. You are the Messiah. So remarkable. Look what Jesus says after this in verse 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you. Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And so he says to Peter, he uses his full name there, right? Simon, son of Jonah. He says, you are blessed to know this. You are blessed to know this. Surely, because we see the clues in the text we're going to read next week, surely Jesus knew that Peter was just in a few moments going to misunderstand something about what Messiah meant. He knew that he was going to be confused about what was going on, but he didn't challenge him here. He said, Peter, everything that you've said is true. Everything that you've said is true. I am the Savior of Israel. I am the Son of the living God. He said, because you know this, you are blessed. But notice what he says. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I wonder if you and I have ever considered the fact that this is the work that only God can do in our lives. What do I mean by that? I mean to say that for us to confess Jesus as Messiah, for us to trust in him for salvation, 
It is wholly and completely a work of God in our lives. God has to reveal to us through the preaching of his word and through circumstances in our lives and through faithful teaching of the Bible that Jesus really is who he said he was. None of us on our own accord woke up one morning and thought, I want to be a Christian. And I know this is true because think of the testimonies that you and I give. That's not where we start, is it? We say, well, I was raised in a godly home by godly parents, as John alluded to. Or in the case of of my situation, the home was not the best, but I was raised in a good church that preached the gospel and that loved me. Or my coworker at work one day said, hey, would you like to come to church with me? And I thought, yeah, sure, I'd like to do that. And then I began to to hear the preacher preaching, and some stuff started making sense to me. And then I I thought, you know, I used to not believe that, but now I I do. Now notice here, there's a lot of involvement on our part, right? We're listening, we're hearing, we're showing up. But who is the one revealing? It's God. It's God. And so this issue of salvation is such a precious gift. The issue of the revelation required for us to confess Jesus as Messiah comes from God himself. And that's important That's important because it helps us to realize that there is nothing in us that can grasp this on our own. We need God's help. And so Peter here, he says, you didn't just figure this out on your own. In other words, he's saying your simple observation was not enough. Remember Bart Ehrman, this New Testament scholar who's smarter than probably all of them, has a PhD in New Testament He observes who Jesus is. He has access to the sources. He's read them. He has scrutinized them. He has no doubt heard sermons. He actually did grow up a Christian or grow up in a Christian home, he says, as part of his, his, well, he doesn't have a testimony. I guess the wrong way to put it, but as part of him telling of his experience, he observed. Flesh and blood observed all of these things about Jesus. Flesh and blood of Peter, his eyes, his ears, saw the miracles of Jesus. And Jesus says, none of that is what ultimately convinced you that I am the Messiah. What ultimately convinced you is God himself revealing it to you. So it required Peter's active participation. It required his paying attention. It required a response from him. It required a confession of belief. But notice, God the Father is the one who revealed it to Peter. It's a remarkable thing. This, this puts aside, as Paul would say, all boasting in us. It puts aside all claims of cleverness in us. It puts aside all claims of, of superiority in us. When we realize that God himself has to reveal who he is, not just to Peter and the disciples, but to us. And oh, how grateful we can be when that truth is realized in our lives. When we realize that God has shown us himself. And that he invites us through belief and trust in him into an eternal relationship with him. It's a remarkable truth. And so he he says here, flesh and blood is not realized to you, but my father is in heaven. And then he gets to this. He says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I want to look here. And a couple of, couple of issues involved in this verse. I'm going to do a little, little Bible study here in the middle of preaching. So look here at verse 18. It says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So I'm going to, have, I'm going to kind of go after a little bit of an elephant in the room regarding this verse. 
So if you grew up Baptist like me, if you grew up a Protestant for that matter, you might have heard this verse interpreted in a way that I believe, and most commentators are convinced, is not 100% faithful. Here's what I mean by that. In reaction to the abuses of the, the office of the papacy, which we're going to talk about in just a moment, inside of the Catholic Church and the claims that they make about the authority of the Pope, Protestants have been tempted to say, no, actually, Jesus wasn't saying he was going to found the church on Peter. He was saying he was going to found the church on the confession that Peter made. But we've already seen that the confession that Peter made was not 100% correct. It was not 100% authentic in the sense that Peter was not confessing the full and total identity of the Messiah. And so we cannot allow abuses of one particular religious group of a biblical text to push us away from the plain meaning of the biblical text. And the plain meaning of the biblical text in this verse is that, yes, indeed, Jesus Christ founded the church on the authority of Peter and the apostles. You know how we know this? Because in Ephesians chapter 2, you can, how about you turn there, Ephesians chapter 2. I'm just going to read one verse. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 20 says this. Well, let's read back in verse 19 for context. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Listen, built on the what? Foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so I would submit to you that the plain reading of this text and the plain reading of the New Testament, particularly in the book of Acts and in that verse we just read, shows us that, yes, indeed, Jesus intended to build his church on the work and life and authority of Peter. Now, the Bible says nothing about subsequent popes after Peter. It says nothing about a person who would be an ultimate authority over the church from now and forever. It says nothing about what we would call papal succession, one after the other. They can claim to trace a lineage back to Peter. And so what I want to submit to you is that we cannot, again, we cannot allow the abuse of a text to negate the plain meaning of the text. And so why is it even relevant that we talk about the, the misinterpretation of the Catholic Church? Well, it's relevant because this church has important mission work among peoples who believe what the Catholic Church teaches about the papacy. And let me just be very honest with you, but I try to be kind at the same time, that the claims of the papacy are blasphemous because the Pope claims to be Christ's one representative on earth. He claims to be the one through whom Christ is mediating his saving work. But the Bible says that there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And so our issue here is not to, to be uncharitable towards our Catholic friends, to not, to not go after them. And, and I would just encourage, if you have Catholic friends and family, to be kind and gracious and, and talk with them about what the Scriptures say and, and, and be honest with them, but be kind. But I will say this, that it is a false claim and a false teaching to say that this verse says that from now and forever, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, is in charge of the church. It's a false claim. It can be demonstrated historically that that is false, if you care to do the research. 
that it wasn't until a few centuries after the church began that the Bishop of Rome even had supremacy over the other bishops in the Christian world. So what what I want to show you here is that, again, we can't let the corruption of a teaching rob us of the richness of what is going on here in the life of Peter. He says, on this rock, the kind of wordplay there between Peter, the Greek word petros, and the word rock, kind of Jesus does a fun little wordplay there. He says, on this rock, I will build my church. So I would submit to you the book of Acts as proof that that is true, particularly the first 10 chapters. Because who do we see doing the preaching? Peter. Who do we see doing some healings? Peter, of course, with John also. Who do we see bringing Gentiles into the church in Acts chapter 10? The apostle Peter. So Jesus doesn't say, you're the builder of the church, Peter. He says, I'm the builder, but I'm going to use you to start the building. It's a remarkable thing, particularly in light of how how Peter is going to fail miserably here in the upcoming upcoming weeks and months of Jesus' life. But God knows he has a remarkable plan for him. Notice there it says the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I would submit to you that uh, this is kind of an interesting translation here. So the NIV, the NASB, and the CSB all translate it more literally, which says the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The ESV uh, makes an interpretive decision and says the gates of hell. And the NLT makes an even greater interpretive decision and says all of the powers of hell will not conquer it. Here's why that's even remotely important. It's not that those verses are necessarily wrong or contradict each other, but sometimes we're tempted to read backwards into a text. And what I want us to do is just take it on its face value. And when Jesus is saying here that the gates of Hades, that's the Greek word there, the gates of Hades will not overcome the church, he's really talking about the power of death. He's not necessarily talking so much about demons and the power of Satan, although that's a true doctrine. Satan cannot overcome the church. He never has been able to, and he never will. It's just not necessarily directly what Jesus is referring to. What Jesus is saying is, the church I build will never die because I, the builder, will never die. Those of you who are builders or do that for a living, you know, I mean, I don't want to be morbid, but if you're in the middle of a building project and the Lord calls you home, that building project may not get finished. At least it may not get built the way that you wanted it to get built. What Jesus is saying is, I've started a building project that's never going to end. I'm the builder, and I'm going to be there forever. I'm going to choose the people who are going to be helping me build this. I'm going to choose the men and women throughout the centuries, starting with Peter, who are going to help build the church. But I'm the builder, and I'm not going anywhere. The church won't die. The gates of death, the powers of death will not overcome it because they can't overcome me. And in two weeks, we're going we're to celebrate that reality when we come together on Resurrection Sunday, when we come together on Easter to proclaim the resurrection of Christ, the proof that he gives that death will not come against the church. So be encouraged by that. Do you realize that you in this room are proof that this text is true? Do you realize the hardships and the persecution and all of the nonsense that the church has faced in the course of 2,000 years? And yet here today on April 2nd, 2017, you in rural Alabama are sitting here because you are a Christian. And because somebody preached the gospel to you. And because you have believed and because the builder of the church is alive. And he's doing it not just here, he's doing it all over the world. 
And so be encouraged. It's true. No matter what Bart Ehrman says, no matter what the critics say, no matter what you, the skeptic, this morning might say, the existence of this church and the church throughout the world is proof that the builder is not dead and that he is continuing to build his church. The gates of death have not overcome the church. So be encouraged by that. No matter how dark the culture gets, no matter how confusing things get, we've been there before. We've been there before. Nothing can stop the progress of the church. Nothing. Notice here in our just brief time here remaining, he says here, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now this verse, again, lots of, of, of Catholic teaching been very wrong on this. This is why the priests in the Catholic Church believe that they have the authority to forgive sins. Even though the Bible clearly says that only God can forgive sins. You recall the, the, the story where Jesus healed the paralytic when the men dropped him through the roof and he was accused of blasphemy because he sought to forgive the man's sins. And the Pharisees said, only God can forgive sins. And Jesus said, you're right. And I'll prove to you that I am him by doing this. So it's not going on. Peter has not been given something um, mystical or strange to stand at the pearly gates and unlock heaven when you show up. That's not what's happening here. In fact, the verb tense is kind of strange and and weird, and i got to see in Greek, so full disclosure, I'm just being helped along by commentaries here, not by my own understanding of the Greek language. But the the verb tense here talks about a a, a future and a past. Here's what I mean by that. Some of your Bibles may say, Um, Something like, will have been loosed. What's going on there is that Jesus is saying, the decisions that you carry out, Peter, the ministry that you do, is going to be in accordance with my predetermined plan. It's going to be in accordance with what I have determined to do. When Jesus was born in Luke Luke chapter 2, verse 32, Jesus is described as being a light to the who? The Gentiles, to the nations. In Acts chapter 10, who does Peter take the gospel to? The Gentiles in Jesus' name. So when it says here that he's been given these keys, it's more like keys of a steward, someone who is in charge of an estate, not the keys that the owner has to let someone in and out of the estate. That's not the authority Peter has. And when we get to Matthew chapter 18 in a few weeks, this is going to make a lot more sense because Jesus fleshes it out more. He talks about what authority looks like in the church. He talks about what it means to sometimes in very extreme circumstances exclude people from the church for their own good. But it's going to make a lot more sense. So look forward to that. But I can assure you, It has nothing to do with Peter sitting in heaven with any kind of authority whatsoever about whether you or I get in. That's not what's happening here. Then here at the end, he he, he says, don't tell anybody. (laughs) Don't tell anybody. Jesus is fond of this, you know. Jesus is fond of telling his disciples it's not time yet. He's even fond of telling people that he healed or that he cast demons out of. He said, don't tell anybody who I am. This is going to be one of the last times that Jesus says this. Because as I told you before, he's making a shift geographically and thematically in his ministry. Now he is heading to the cross. Now he is going to reveal who he is. But it's not time yet. It's not time yet because Peter doesn't fully understand who Jesus is as the Messiah. He doesn't fully understand what it means that Jesus is going to have to suffer. But he will soon. 
And so Jesus says, it's not time, guys. It's not time. But it will be time. In Matthew 28, it will be time when he says, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I have commanded you. And so the time is coming. It's just not right now. He says, guys, you got a little more training to do. you got a little more things to figure out. I'm with you. I'm going to help you. I'm going to show you. I'm going to teach you. And then you'll be ready. I do want to conclude. I promised you the remainder of the testimony from our, our missionary brother serving in East Asia. So you'll recall that, that he's working among this people group that, to his knowledge, had no believers. And so one day he comes across this small band of believers and, uh, and they tell him the story about in 1997 the gospel came to them and the church started. Here's what we pick up. But at that time, the government also started persecuting them. Some were beaten, many put in jail, and others had their precious valuables and their livestock stolen from them. The family I met with, they were thrown into jail. Mom, dad, and a 14-year-old son. And they had all of their livestock stolen. Their church, although now a bit smaller than it was then, still meets regularly some 30 years later. The mother passed away a few years ago, but the father and son are still faithful. Believe me, Satan has tried all he could to destroy these believers. There have been many cults that have come through and have taken away some, but his church has stayed strong. This really is a living example of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 16. So I researched this people group that this brother is working with, and it's a hard place. There's half a million people there with an estimated 200 Christians. Half a million people with less Christians that are in this building right now. That is a tremendous thing. And so I would encourage you, um, if, if you want to know more about it, I've placed a few of these little books about the unreached people groups of East Asia um, out on the Welcome Center. There's just a few, but if you want to be engaged about that, if you want to be encouraged and you want to see how the church is going forward in the world, I encourage you to Pick one of those up on your way out. The last thing I will say before we return to worship through song is that, honestly, the church cannot go forward without the faithful proclamation of the gospel. And even more personally than that, the church cannot go forward unless you and I embrace the gospel. Unless you and I believe that Jesus is who he said he was, not a construction of ancient myths, not some kind of... Um, moral teacher, not some kind of great prophet, not any of those things, but that he actually is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And for many of us,